We've been to D.C. We rocked L.A., destroyed the Motor City, and finally, Snap Judgment Live is coming home. Snap Live in the Bay, August 1st and 2nd at San Francisco's North Theater. The world's most amazing storytellers, you are invited. Get tickets right now at snapjudgment.org or KALW.org. Okay, so, top secret bunker, 1983, just past midnight, and Soviet Lieutenant Colonel Petrov, he settles into his commander chair. He's tired, worked a double shift. It's his duty to monitor satellite and computer data to warn the Soviet Union in the event of nuclear attack by the United States. In the event of such an attack, the Soviet strategy is simple launch an immediate, all-out nuclear counter-strike. And that night, as Petrov views one of a dozen monitors in front of him, a computer alarm sounds, warning that a nuclear missile is headed toward the Soviet Union. Petrov reasons that a computer error has occurred. Surely, the United States wouldn't launch a single missile. All of his planning, all of his training, all of his test scenarios say that if the U.S. attacks to launch a barrage of missiles. He clears his console and he declares the warning to be a simple false alarm. But then another alarm flashes. Satellite monitors indicate the launch of a second missile, then a third, and a fourth, and a fifth. Five minute man intercontinental ballistic missiles headed directly for the Soviet Union. Deafening alarms, sirens, a red button pulsates at Petrov's fingertips, waiting. Officers assigned to the bunker began shouting at Petrov for a decision. Do your job. Do it. Petrov knows that he sits at a critical juncture. Once he declares the Soviet Union under attack, he knows what will happen. They're screaming for a decision right now. Seconds to decide. Still, he breathes. He takes his time. He analyzes. And then, against protocol, Petrov overrides his computer. Once again, declaring all the warnings to be a false alarm. Then, the entire command bunker waits the long minutes it would take American missiles to destroy his homeland in order to find out if he was correct. He waits. They wait. And the end does not come. Still, Petrov has broken military protocol by defying computer warnings his superiors subject him to intense questioning. Why did you ignore your training? Why did you defy procedure? Why? And perhaps because he didn't instantly follow protocol, Petrov was no longer considered a reliable military officer. In the face of official scrutiny, Petrov retires from command. He lives a quiet life now. But here's the thing. That night, 
The night that computers told him that missiles were coming, Lieutenant Colonel Stanislav Petrov, he wasn't even supposed to be there. Last minute schedule change and a different commanding officer, someone better at following orders. Maybe that person would have done their job differently. All the way to the end. Maybe not. Then again. Maybe. Today on Snap Judgment, from PRX and NPR, we proudly present Save. Save. Amazing stories from real people where help comes from the most unexpected places. My name is Glenn Washington. Breathe a very deep sigh of relief because you're listening to Snap Judgment. Snap, snap Judgment. We're going to kick off today's saved episode with the story of help coming from one of the most unlikely of places. Snap Judgment, Stephanie Fu has the story. Years ago, Ken Goddard was a student at UC Riverside, and he was studying biochemistry, which could be really boring, except for when he was in his favorite professor's classroom. It was a lot of fun listening to Dr. Radlick talk. Uh, He was the youngest full professor of organic chemistry in the history of the University of California. He was pretty intriguing because he he used drug structures in his lectures. You know, uh, instead of using uh, some arcane chemistry structure, he'd use uh, cocaine or things like that. Uh, We figured just to kind of keep our attention. But I was at best a B student. So after graduating, Ken isn't that keen on becoming a biochemist. It's a lot of pipetting. But then something a little more exciting shows up. And as fate would have it, there was an opening at the Riverside County Sheriff's Department for a forensic scientist crime scene investigator, deputy sheriff. Two weeks later, I raised my right hand, and I'm a deputy sheriff. And life suddenly got different. None of the other forensic scientists wanted to work the crime scenes, so I was out there digging up bodies in shallow graves when the narcotics sergeant came in and said, uh, got a deal for you. His sergeant wanted him to go undercover, playing the part of a young college student looking to make meth. He was supposed to infiltrate what the police thought was a series of meth labs out in the Mojave Desert. Ken said he was interested in the assignment. But my problem was I didn't know how to make methamphetamine. Uh, Nobody had ever taught us that. Radlick hadn't taught us that. And it occurred to me, maybe I could go to him. I asked permission. The dark sergeant said, sure. Showed up at Dr. Radlick's office, properly showed my brand new shiny badge, and his eyes got real wide. And I explained to him what I wanted to do, if he would teach me how to make methamphetamine, how to cook, uh, if you will, so I could get into the laboratories and figure out what was going on. After, I think, recovering from surprise, he agreed to do that. And for, I think it was four weeks, Tuesdays and Thursdays, uh, Radley certainly taught me how to cook the right way. If you use ethyl ether, you're going to get some pure crystalline stuff. It's going to look like a white, clean white powder. But then the idea was I was supposed to look like an alchemist. I was supposed to use uh, tricks like using uh, tinfoil as a catalyst. And so Radley taught him all the tricks of the trade. 
So Ken was ready, when a couple weeks later, it was finally time for him to go undercover to the meth lab in the desert. We're out there in the middle of the Mojave Desert at night, and the snitch is going to take me in. And it's really dark out there, and it's an old, creepy uh, block wall home out there. And I'm starting to realize, hmm, this isn't great. Uh, I'm not going to be armed. I was horrified that I was walking into a place with Bunsen burners and flames. The snitch went into the house first, leaving Ken outside to regret his decision. Because he was wondering about when he saw the real meth dealers, was he going to be able to keep up his act of pretending to be a college student? Would they find him out? He knew that the labs were protected by violent biker gangs. But before he could turn back, the snitch ran out of the house towards him with news. The lab is gone. It's, and we ran in there, and sure enough, it's been taken apart. It no longer is there. And everybody shrugged, and I just kind of forgot about it. Ken didn't go undercover again, but he stayed in criminal justice. And a few years later, he was in his office when a bunch of narcs burst in, showing him a white powder. And they want me to identify it. What is it? Is it PCP? That's what they're thinking. I examined the uh, material, and I said, oh, no. It wasn't PCP. It turned out to be an analog, the thiopine analog of PCP, which basically meant it looked like PCP, but it had been altered. And because of that having been altered, it might have the same effect, uh, but it's no longer illegal. Well, the narcs weren't happy about that, but it's going to turn out to be my job to testify in court. So Ken has to be the expert witness for the prosecution. He's got to try and prove that this dealer was doing something illegal by selling the designer PCP, which should have been easy until... Narc Sergeant came by and said, oh, by the way, just wanted to let you know, uh, uh, somebody from your past is going to be testifying against you, uh, Dr. Philip something or other. And I said, Dr. Philip Radlick? UC Riverside? He said, yeah, yeah, that's him. I said, oh, oh no. See, Dr. Radlick was going to be the expert witness for the defense, testifying on behalf of the dealer. The coincidence wasn't that crazy. Lawyers would often recruit local scientists and professors to testify for them. But I'm that B student, and uh, he's that most brilliant, youngest, full professor in the history of UC. Well, I'm kind of horrified, because this is going to be a one-on-one, Dr. Radlick and I against each other. It wasn't going to be a fair fight, from my perspective. So i got to prepare for this. I've got to look good up on the stand. I've got to be ready for the questions. So I'm studying like crazy. Finally, the court date arrived. So I meet Professor Radlick there. He greets me like a long-lost son, pats me on the shoulder, says how proud he is of me. But when Ken got up to testify, Radlick was less amicable. He started feeding the defense attorney questions for Ken on little slips of paper, like... Draw the structure, draw THC, uh, draw PCP, draw all these things. And I'm doing it. And uh, Dr. Radlick got the smile on his face, and he handed the defense attorney a slip of paper. And the defense attorney said, uh, draw cyclohexane. Well, it's the simplest organic chemical structure. It's six carbon atoms in a circle. My brain went blank. Dr. Radlick smiled, and I'm sure he was thinking he might have been a little generous of that B. He then got up on the stand and gave this absolutely brilliant lecture on organic chemistry in about 10 minutes. It was all I could do not to take notes. And it was obvious that he was winning. The jury was sold. They went with Radlick, not Ken, and the dealer wound up getting off. Ken was impressed and congratulated Radlick, but the two quickly lost touch. 
That's why Ken was surprised when, three years after the trial... My wife comes in with a newspaper and says, you've got to read this. I'm kind of focusing in on the headlines. Uh, UCR professor arrested $40 million PCP lab. It's Radlick. The headlines accused Radlick of being behind a franchise of PCP labs. It was like the dominoes in your head. This long stack of them suddenly went click, 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 all the way down. All the way back to the point that I went into Dr. Radlick's office, showed him my badge, and his eyes got wide. And I'm thinking, oh my God, it was him all along. Uh, these lawyers he was working with, the defense attorneys uh, who have sleazy clients, any one of them could have come up with the idea of this franchise lab system and talk Radlick into being a helper. But instead of feeling betrayed or angry, Ken actually felt grateful because he thought back to that first lab that he was supposed to go undercover to. I was probably walking into a far more dangerous situation than I realized. Uh, would I have been able to maintain an act of a poor college student uh, desperately trying to earn some money? I'm probably well off that things turn out the way they did. And as far as he knows, there was only one leak that knew he was going to that lab. After my training, after my talking to Radlick, he knew enough uh, to know roughly where I was going, that I was heading out to that laboratory that he, in my mind, he was somehow involved with. And I think... Um, the fact that lab was shut down did save my life, and I think Radlick did it. I followed the, the trial uh, very carefully. Uh, the DEA went after him twice. As I'm reading these, these articles, I'm thinking, okay, uh, I work with the DEA. They're not dummies. They're going after him for a reason. Uh, but he's winning. What's going on? And I, I kept thinking, okay, there has to be something more into the background. And I, I kept waiting to, to find out. Radlick was finally convicted of conspiracy to manufacture a controlled substance, but he served no time. He was only sentenced to probation and community service. I was hoping to, I'd get a chance to talk to him, to, to really see what was happening. And then he disappeared. I asked some of my DEA buddies, do you know anything about it? Nobody did. He was just gone. My sense was he'd gone you know, off to some desert island, a resort place. Either that or he was dead because he knew too much. He was working with some very dangerous people. And, you know, either possibility sounded real. Ken went on to open the nation's only wildlife forensics lab, which he still runs. But on the side, he began to write fiction. So I wrote The Alchemist. Probably not the alchemist you're thinking of. Another alchemist. And in this alchemist, there was a professor who teaches a young sheriff how to make meth. Ken published it. Really? I think more than anything else, hoping Radlick would, would read it or somebody who knew about Radlick, who knew what would happen to him, would contact me. Years went by. And then a few months ago, 38 years later, uh, my wife hands me a phone. She said, somebody wants to talk to you. And, and the voice says, I can. This is Professor Radlick. And I blurted out the first thing that occurred to me, which is, you're not dead. He laughed. He said, no, I'm fine. He said, I've turned my life around. I said, I've got a brand new family, I've got kids. And he said, I googled my name and what shows up at the top of the list, but uh, Ken Goddard and the alchemist. When Radlick had disappeared all those years ago, he'd gone to Switzerland to start a company. And since then, he'd been the CEO of multiple companies, including one that manufactured heart valves. Uh, and I, I said on the 
as we're talking, uh, thank you for saving my life. And he paused. In a very soft voice, he said, you're welcome. And so I just thought this was crazy. And I wanted to hear this amazing conversation. So I got a hold of Dr. Philip Radlich, and I got him and Ken to talk on the phone one more time. Is that Professor Radlich? Yes, it is. (laughs) (laughs) How are you? Oh, it's good to hear your voice again. So we're chit-chatting, making small talk. And the first really interesting thing that Dr. Radlich says is he didn't have any idea who Ken was before reading his book and barely had any recollection of him now. I have to say that right now Ken is a facial mystery to me. I'm not looking forward to seeing him. Ken tried to jumpstart his memory. I, but I, re- I remember you saying, well, I, c- I can teach you magic tricks. And you did. You used tinfoil and uh, other reactants. I, I'll be honest with you. I do not remember teaching anyone how to make meth- methamphetamine is what you're talking about. But it could be. Dr. Radlick went on to explain his side of the story, why he says he was arrested. He said that a lawyer he trusted introduced him to a young inventor making polymers. He seemed like a nice enough man, and he needed this chemical, piperdine, for his experiments. So Radlick hooked him up, called some friends who worked for a chemical company, and sold the inventor 120 gallons of the stuff. Turns out, piperdine is one of the main ingredients in PCP. And the nice young man was trying to start a PCP lab. And two days before Christmas, there was a knock on my front door and I was arrested. Simply said, I used atrocious judgment. That, that's the least you can say about it. The worst you can say about it is, and I've searched my mind a million times for this, that I suspected what was going on was illegal, but I didn't ask. So Dr. Radlick says that he never had any willing involvement with drug kingpins or people who make drugs, but Ken... He's thinking about that one night out on the Mojave Desert. He's thinking about the chemists in the meth lab out there. Yeah, well, it, and it's something, I, I don't know how much you can talk about it, but I've long had this sense that when I was a 23-year-old criminalist and I went into that lab, it was torn down. Uh, I, I, I can't ask you easily, but um, I think you did save my life. I don't know what, what you said or did. I don't remember doing that at all, but at the time there was so much going on, and I remember a lab in the desert that the San Bernardino County Sheriff's Department was trying to do something about, but I don't remember him being involved. That part's vague in my mind, or maybe I should say absent. That's okay. I'm still here. My wife, daughter, and granddaughter are thankful. After we got off the phone with Radlick, I had to ask Ken, so what do you think about what Radlick had to say? I really enjoyed the conversation we had with Dr. Radlick, and uh, in spite of all he said, I really still believe he saved my life, and I'm quite content with that. I'm fine with whatever Dr. Radlick was. I'm happy that with what he is now. Since we've put this story together, Ken Goddard has extended an invitation for Dr. Ratlick to visit his Oregon laboratory. And Dr. Ratlick said that he would be delighted. Big thanks to both gentlemen for sharing their story on the snap. That piece, it was produced by Stephanie Fu.
Now, when Snappy turns, we might have to bring a bad little dog to that place they put bad little dogs. The Uber producer thinks he knows how to drive, and we rescue a kitty from a tree. Kinda. When Snap Judgment, the saved episode continues, stay tuned. Here's something that's going to surprise you. You ready? You should be snacking more. Why? Naturebox.com is why. Naturebox offers hundreds of delicious snacks. Delicious! And you don't have to feel guilty about eating them. Because they're better for you. They're natural. With zero trans fat, zero high fructose corn syrup, you'll even find snacks that are low on sugar, non-GMO, and without gluten. And... They ship for free. You know that cranky moment around 3 p.m. where you're ready to kill the Uber producer? Well, rather than go to the vending machine, why don't you just grab a peanut butter nom nom from Nature Box or a baked sweet potato fries or maybe a dark cocoa almond snack? Oh, my goodness. No more hungriness. No more crankiness. And get ready to be really happy. If you try NatureBox.com right now, you're going to get 50% off your first month's box. Just go to naturebox.com slash snap. You should be snacking. Just have to snack smarter. Stay full. Stay strong. Go to naturebox.com slash snap to get 50% off your first month's box. Naturebox.com slash snap. Thanks for listening to Snap. This summer, imagine you call up a friend and say, meet me at the bar and tell me what's going on with the economy. Now imagine that's actually a fun conversation. Now stop imagining and subscribe to Planet Money Podcast. Find Planet Money on iTunes along with other NPR podcasts. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the saved edition. Today, we're talking to people who find themselves in a whole heap of trouble, and they're frantically trying to dig themselves out. Now, coincidentally, Snap Judgment's uber producer, Mr. Mark Ristich, he spends the majority of his time in a whole heap of trouble, trying frantically to dig himself out. It's over. It's officially over. We're giving her stuff back and we get to the books. She hands me my book by Henry David Thoreau. It's not Walden. It's his journal entries. She said it was stupid anyway, but I liked it. I give her back EconStats 452. Reluctantly. Not because it's a great read, but because I'm still taking EconStats 452. But I just figured, fine, you want to be that way? Be that way. However, when I go to look around for the book, the library is checked out and the bookstore is sold out. I go to class, I draw some graphs, such as chances of finding book versus demand for book. And then I just stop looking. Instead, I start reading the same Thoreau diary over again. He talks about building his cabin in the woods, how he used this many nails and how many pennies that cost at the blacksmith. 
and how when you're feeling ill, the best thing is to throw on all your clothes and go for a constitutional. You go out, you recognize the same animals from yesterday, and regard each other. So right when Thoreau is landing at Pinkster Swamp and the azaleas are blooming, that's when I have to take my final and stats. The final final. To graduate. But on the way to the exam, faster than you could say Peter Pan's and dentalism, I develop an instantaneous love of nature. Fauna, flora, other phrases. I turn my car around, I go home and take stock of my means. $250 in cash. That's it. No bank account, no credit card, no daddy's credit card. Okay, I do have the family safety net. It's a Christmas tree farm. My grandfather left it in his will. No one has ever seen it. We just have a vague idea of where it is. So the plan is to somehow find the farm, and once there, I'll just eat, sleep, and write. Write what? Well, here's Thoreau. Is not the poet bound to write his own biography? Is there any other work for him but a good journal? A good journal? Well, how hard is that? So I pack up. I leave Detroit, and I head up north. I'm feeling good about myself. And then I hear the sirens. It's the man trying to keep me down. But I don't cry to the trooper. I don't tell him about my effing statistics, about how my future is futile. I just take the speeding ticket. $200. Fine. You want to be that way? You know. Now, I'm just going a little bit slower through Upper Michigan, and I stumble upon a summer camp. It's not yet open. So I roll away a couple of boulders, and I drive around the log gate. And there's this small grouping of tiny cabins right by the lake. They're all shuttered up, but I break in. I sleep easy until the morning, and then I hear a knocking. I walk outside. It's a woodpecker. He sees me. He keeps knocking. I come closer. We regard each other. And then he's back to business. So yeah, I write that down. And as the ink dries, I admit to myself that breaking into a cabin is not the same thing as Thoreau building his own. I still have to find that farm. And so I take off and I trace the route of the river where it's supposed to be. I'm following along, and then I see something interesting. It's an orange arrow pointing down a path. There's this rusty sign that says something about Department of Defense, but whatever. I go with it. I turn down the path, the sunlight disappears, and I creep along. I don't want to hit a beaver or a deer. I'm winding through, and I come to this opening with these massive dirt hills and what looks like Hummer tracks. And so then I'm just, like, gunning it. Up and down these hills with total impunity. I don't know what it is, but the car is just like floating on magic. And I'm like, yes, this is it. This is nature. This is awesome. I ditch the hills, and I charge on to a two-track grass path. The path turns into sand, but I just plow on. The car slows, but I floor it. And the car wheels are just spinning and spinning until they grind their way into the sand. And the car stalls. Tailpipe buried, sand up to the doors. I have to climb out the window to get out of the car. (sighs) I'm miles from the road and I'm broke. I know anyone who would save me would probably arrest me. 
So I empty the car, I set up my tent, and I eat just staring at my fiesta. Okay, first step, get the car up. I dig a hole in the sand for the jack. I put my floor mats under the jack so it won't sink in the sand. One by one, I raise the wheels and place rocks and logs underneath the tires. I forage the forest for good logs and big rocks to build my path back to solid ground. It takes me a day and a half. I go through all my food, I go through all my water. And then, at high noon, I pack my car. I know, this is a one-shot road. It's all in reverse. I get in, I start the car, engage the clutch. The car lurches backwards, it slips, and then it finds its grip. I gun it, reverse, with rocks and wood shooting up all around me. I finally feel firm ground beneath the tires and I stop. I leave the car running and then I get out. And I'm just seeing my car there, idling. I know, I know, I don't need my Christmas tree farm. I can't live in a safety net. I look back down the path at the road that I built. I'm covered in sweat, and I'm like, yeah, yeah. This is what the row meant. This is a constitutional. Nation. Thanks you, Mark Ristich, you Uber producer, you. Thank you so much for gifting us with that harrowing tale of overcoming trials and tribulations. In fact, Pat, I think I feel a gospel song coming on. <laughs> Give thanks for that piece was produced by Mark Ristich. <laughs> Now then, people want to be saved. They want to be rescued from whatever it is they find themselves in. But what if you're fine? What if you've got it together, but you stumble across an injustice? Do you walk on by? Or do you make it your problem? Snap Judgment regular contributor Katie Mingo tells us her story. I stole a dog once. He was a little curly-haired mutt, a small, pathetic creature. I'd been walking by him for years, and he was always there on the same three-foot length of chain, shivering in the shadow of the dingy yellow house where his owners lived. I'd never seen anyone touch him or walk him or throw a stick for him. I once saw a woman open the door of the house and throw a handful of food at him, which he pecked out of the dirt like a starving chicken. The sun beat down on his head in the summer, and snowflakes gathered in his curly black hair in the winter. The days and years passed over him, and he ticked off time like a dog-shaped sundial. My friend Sonia and I fantasized about liberating the little black dog from his chain. She said she wanted to give him a better life. I don't think she thought we'd ever really do it. But one day when the owner's cars were gone from the driveway, I approached the dog. I just wanted to see what he'd do, and he wagged his tail, so I got a little closer, 
and he stood on his hind legs, hopping expectantly, his front legs like arms reaching up for me. And before I knew it, I was unhooking his chain, gathering him into my arms, and running. We ran down the street together, my chin bouncing on the top of his head, and I whispered in his ear, You're free now, little dog. You're free. I took the dog to Sonia's house. She bathed him and fleas fell off of him and dotted the water like poppy seeds. She fluffed him up with a towel and we cut the mats out of his hair. He had an underbite and cloudy eyes. We named him Frankie. I think it was Eris who got bit by him first. Since she was only six, we blamed it on her. You know kids, they don't know the right way to handle dogs. But it wasn't long before everyone in the house had been bitten. And one by one, they turned against him, saying, I'm sorry you've had such a hard life, little dog, but I still hate you. Sonia did her best to love him, but looking back on it, it was a chaotic environment for convalescence. People wandered in and out of the house with dogs in tow. Sometimes there were punk shows in the living room. And after he established his bad reputation, people mostly stepped around him, even as he looked expectantly up at them or begging for attention, stood up on his hind legs, putting on his very cutest act, They avoided him, saying, Oh no, I've heard about you. One day I came in to find Sonia making flyers that displayed a picture of Frankie, and below the picture, a caption that read, I'm looking for a new home. I have issues, but I could be a great dog for a patient person. In the picture, his head was cocked, and he smiled dumbly, as if the caption below him might have read, I have no idea what kind of is about to befall me. Like all flyers with dogs' pictures on them, it was heartbreaking. You said you wanted him, I said. And Sonia said, he's really hard, Katie. I've really tried. And so for the second time, this time lacking in any heroic spirit at all, I picked up the tiny dog and took him away. I brought him back to my own house. For the first year of our lives together, Frankie and I got into the most bitter arguments. Most other dogs I'd known would retreat when yelled at, tail between their legs. Frankie was different. He escalated the argument like a smart-mouthed teenager. I would say, no, Frankie. And he would say, baring his teeth and scowling up at me. And then I'd say, bad dog, Frankie. And he'd say, this time looking more rabid and advancing on me like, I'll take you down, you tall, skinny bitch. Finally, I'd be forced to get the broom in an effort to whisk him out of the room. But he fought the broom too, biting and thrashing little pieces of broom in his mouth. And so it went for the first year. He had his sweet moments, his fun moments. But inevitably, just when I'd think I had won his trust, he'd bite me again. His bites hurt, but worse were the hurt feelings. I'd look at him surprised and betrayed, my hand throbbing, and sometimes I'd yell, you, Frankie, and slam the doors in our apartment. Even in play, Frankie sounded like a maniac. Here's the only recording I have of him happily wrestling with my other dog, Memphis. 
You get the idea. If this is him happy, try to imagine him mad. Frankie and I battled it out for alpha status for far too long, and I often let my 14-pound, curly-haired jerk of a dog get the better of me. And yet, little by little, Frankie became a new dog, one that was less like a wild animal and more like a pet. I figured out what set him off, what made him bite. He had rules, essentially, which included never touching him while he was eating and never, ever attempting to move him when he appeared to be comfortable. And I learned that if you obeyed his rules, Frankie was tolerable, even good. Frankie and Time learned my rules, too, and we stopped getting in fights. We moved to the country, and he spent his days lounging in the driveway and barking at the few cars that passed. He was happy. I feel like this part should be about how Frankie taught me how to love unconditionally, how he taught me patience and forgiveness, that I could love something that was prone to fits of rage, that bit me, that bit my mom. But mostly, Frankie taught me about rules, figuring out what yours are, what other people's are, and learning to accept them. It turned out that what Frankie actually wanted more than anything, more than freedom, was rules. It's no wonder the punk house was the wrong place for him. Frankie needed order. After all those years of having none, of not knowing when food would come, when affection would come, he needed some sort of dependable, reliable routine, being able to count on a walk in the morning and food at the same time every day. These were the things that made him the happiest, that allowed him to enjoy his days in the summer sun, rolling in the grass as he sometimes did on his back, like a beetle that got flipped over, like the happiest dog in the world. Thank you so much, Katie Mingle, for you have done the world a good deed. And we here at Snap Judgment certainly hope that you will learn from this to leave well enough alone next time. That piece, it was produced by Nick Vanderkolk. We're going to take a short break as mandated by nameless government entities. But when Snap returns, we're going to go and hang out with a cat lady. And does she have a story? When Snap Judgment, the saved episode continues. Stay tuned. Support for Snap Judgment comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Hey, Snappers. It's your boy, Glenn. And if you've made it this far in the show, we've got a present for you. Especially if you're in the San Francisco Bay Area, Snap Judgment Live is going to hit the streets August 1st and 2nd. It's going to be our biggest and baddest show ever, and we want you to be there. So we've got a discount code for you. Don't tell anybody, but it's Snap likes. It'll save you 10% on your ticket price. Share it amongst your friends, maybe, but nobody else. Snap likes. We're sitting here practicing right now, and I can't wait for you to see this show. Isn't that right, Alex? Right, Glenn. So, 
Get your tickets right now at snapjudgment.org. Are you looking for a great way to make your commute shorter and your weekend longer? Check out the NPR podcast, Planet Money. It's the economy explained. Now do yourself a favor. Try a new NPR podcast available for free on iTunes. Welcome back to Snap Judgment from PRX and NPR. My name is Glenn Washington, and this is the Saved episode where we're rocking stories of helping hands appearing from the most unlikely of situations. And our next story begins in merry old England when Julia Romp, she gives birth to what she hopes is a healthy baby boy. George um, was an unusual baby, just cried, very agitated, and the first signs immediately to everybody was that there is something wrong with him. Three to six months come along, he never smiled. Um, I started to take him backwards and forwards to the hospital, obviously, because he showed signs of almost, as I touched him, like he was on fire. And then he would walk around the house when he did learn to walk, but wouldn't look my way. There was never, ever any kind of communication between me and George. There was nothing at all. And the most difficult thing, I think, for me was having no affection towards me, never touching him, never being able to hold him. If I went near him, he would scream. The closest I got to him is when he was in a deep sleep because we used to give him a um, like cow pole then to help him to sleep, to make him relaxed. He used to have curly blonde hair and I used to wait till he was in a deep sleep just to be able to feel and touch his hair. Do you know, I used to sit and imagine what it would be like to hear him talk, if you, if you get what I'm saying. People said, oh, your child, has your child been abused? That's why you don't talk. You hear the mothers gossiping at the school that your child couldn't speak. And then doctors started to get involved and um, they'd done many tests on him. They did say that he does have a blank on his brain. He then got diagnosed on the Asperger's and autistic spectrum. But um, being diagnosed didn't really help. And it's something I, I just got used to, really that I was going to live with this child and accept him for what he is. There was a stray cat that came into our garden with blood down its neck and it really distressed me. I wasn't the biggest of cat fans to start with because my mum was known as Catwoman. There must have been up to 28, 29 at a time in my mum's house. It obviously got caught on someone's fence or something. Well, I ran around, I said, oh my God, this cat's covered in blood, so we got some food. I told George all about it and said, this poor cat's really sick, I've got to catch it in this box. Because what it is with George is, even though he didn't talk at all, I've always talked to him. And uh, so I'm explaining to George still, George isn't answering, but George is listening all the time and looking and watching everything. And... Absolutely. I mean, I still feel mad saying it now. Out of nowhere, George said in a high-pitched voice, it's like a cartoon character, Well, this is coming out of a child who had never spoke. 
I froze just thinking to myself, my child for the first time in seven years talking. Am I imagining he's just done those sort of sounds, funny high-pitched sounds? Or I said to him, what are you doing? What are you doing? Boo-boo, boo-boo. I said, you talking to the cat? Is that the cat's name? Boo-boo, boo-boo. I came straight in to phone my mum to tell my mum what had happened. I went from the cat to the psychiatrist to George's dad to everybody in the phone book. Everyone thought I was totally mad, but all drove over here. So we had a whole house of people with him walking around saying this high-pitched voice baboo thing. They heard it themselves. They all stood staring at each other and they thought, oh, thank God the mum's not lost it. The child's talking. That was the actual start of him talking. So I thought, well, that's the start of something. So we brought the cat home. He was there now, family. He decided to name the cat Ben. Ben would follow George around. I mean, it was like having a dog. He talked through the cat. Everything was in this high-pitched voice, and then he played through the cat. It was really like a real proper friendship. They would have a routine bit of play. The cat had to sit at the dinner table and eat dinner with us. And I went along with it because if George asked for a fish finger, the cat had a fish finger. And whilst George said fish finger, I was happy for the cat to sit at the table. And that's how it worked. And George went on and asked for a trampoline. And the minute George got on his trampoline, the cat would have to get on it. It was so funny to watch, but the cat liked it. George used to just absolutely, absolutely laugh. I had never heard George laugh, see, and no one else likes the child or he hasn't got any friends. He's only got the cat. The cat started purring and rubbing up my legs and I said to George, when it purrs, it's doing something it done to its mum, it wants love. So when the cat done that to my leg, George done the same. That's the first time George has ever cuddled me by rubbing up my legs and everyone said, oh, well, now it is getting strange, letting your son rub up your leg like a cat. Don't mix with him, his mother's not right. You know, he's acting like a cat. It's all right for other people to judge, but they hadn't had a child for seven years that never give them any attention. Long time to wait, isn't it, you know? Everything was running really smooth and um, we was having a great time and um, we decided to go on a holiday. We had uh, George's dad come and stay here to look after Ben. We got to day three of our holiday and we got a phone call to say that Ben had gone missing. Well, immediately there was complete and utter blank. George, he just absolutely went stiff. He packed his bag and he looked at me and he said, um, we've got to go home, haven't we, and get him back. We actually flew home on day four. <laughs> we went on this mission to try and find our cat. All day long, all night, I had phone calls. I opened a Facebook page. I opened a website. I was going to local shops, post offices, pubs. I was handing out posters of a night. I got arre- nearly got arrested outside the local school for handing out leaflets. But I continued to do it hoping that they would arrest me because then I would get free advertising in the local newspaper because we couldn't afford to do it any other way. I wanted it on the side of the bus and I wanted it on the TV because I just wanted to say to people, look, this cat made my child talk. I got many, many, many phone calls. I had thousands of people help me. Every dead animal that 
got run over. I got called to pick it up to say, is it him? George was very depressed. He didn't eat. He stayed in his room. It, it became like a full-time job. Local people said, oh, here comes the mad cat woman. I've got myself a terrible name, but I was so desperate. Please, somebody help. It was getting nearer to Christmas, and um, obviously Christmas was out the window. George wouldn't leave the house. Friends, close friends, they said, you know, you're really tiring, you look ill, and maybe you should, at this point, say to George, should we think about getting another cat? So three months later, um, at this desperate point, I got this phone call from this lady. Hi, I've got a cat in my um, conservatory. Is your name Julia Romp? I said, oh my God, I can't believe it. Where are you? Expecting her to say Hounslow, Isworth, somewhere in London. She said, oh, she said, I'm in Brighton, my love. Well, I'm not kidding you. I nearly fell off the chair. Well, Brighton's like 90 miles. Is it 90 or 80? I got to this house, knocked on the door. I was so nervous. And there's this whole family stood at the door, all really smiling like that. It was like they were going to sing carols to me or something like that. They started giving me tea and biscuits and saying, oh, your clothes are wet. And, you know, they didn't just go and get my cat. All I kept thinking about is, where's the cat? Where's the cat? She said, don't worry, I am going to take you to your cat. They opened the door and I could not believe it. My heart just, just, I felt like it dropped out my boot. And he popped his little head out the basket and he ran, jumped in my arms. As I tried to take him off of me like a baby, this cat, and pull his neck away from my neck, do you know he held on to me? I kept saying, come on, Babu, I've got to put you in the basket to get you home. We couldn't get him off me. We come back and all of a sudden, as I got really close to home, it was pumping through my thoughts and my feelings. How's George going to react? My God, you don't think, you know, I hope he doesn't not feel right about it the fact he's gone so I shouted out to George up the stairs I said George mummy's home and Babu's here he come running down the stairs and he had this massive big smile on his face and um, I could just see you know you can just see in his face I could just see and I said oh here he is here's Babu and he said oh my god and then he made jokes and got him out and he was just as loving as ever and I was totally exhausted I just sat on the sofa and George pulled everything down, the Christmas tree, the decorations, and I just let him just jump around the front room and them two carry on. And they danced and he laughed and he carried on as normal. George was seven when he had been. He's now 16. He goes to college now. You know, I'm not saying he's 100% social. He does find life very difficult. But he is one fine, kind, nice person. I swore blind I'd never turn out like my mother. Being brought up with cats, lots of cats, let me tell you. The cats were more important than us. As a child, I just said that when I grow up, I was going to have a hair-free, um, cat-free house. Little did I know that later on in life... And I was not only going to turn into me mother, I've got three ferals living with me at the moment and I ended up saving Ben. And uh, Ben opened George's world and um, saved my life. <laughs> that taught me a lesson, didn't it? <laughs> yeah, never mind. The cat came back, the cat came back. I thought he was a goner, but the cat came back cos he wouldn't stay away. 
Much love to everybody over there, Julia, even the cat. Now, Julia wrote a book about how this all went down. We're going to have a link to it on our website, snapjudgment.org. That story was produced by Anna Sussman. Don't move. You've been a party to what happened, and it's all going into the report. You missed some snap? Do not worry. Full episodes, pictures, stuff. Available right now at snapjudgment.org. Listen, Facebook, it doesn't even work without Snap Judgment. Our Twitter handle, snapjudgment.org. Snap was produced by myself and the most daring, heroic, valiant team ever to have rescued me from a bar fight at 2 in the morning. Give it up for the Uber producer, not a slave to fashion, Mr. Mark Ristich. Masidi Miller can spin on his head. Stephanie Fu cannot. Anna Sussman said that's dangerous. Julia DeWitt prefers line dancing. And Rinzel Gorio insists that DJs do not dance. Nick Vandercoe knows how to do an actual jig. And Lilabina, he wishes these fancy nightclubs with their $15 cocktails would just turn on the lights already so people could see where they're going. Despite some statements to the contrary, I am not, in fact, an officer of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting empowered by law to make you shake what your mama gave you, but we'd still like to extend a big thanks to the CPB. Know this. PRX, Public Radio Exchange, has already tried whatever it is you're up to. PRX.org. And of course, you understand that this is not the news. No way is this news. In fact, you could set off for a long hike. You could accidentally fall down a well. And you could sit there for weeks because you tied Lassie to a tree and she can't show little Jimmy where you are. And you would still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is NP.